students. Today is Lecture 13 on Homer's Iliad 2019, Homer's Iliad Book 6, Slides 101 to 112. This is a picture of Hector with his son Astyanax and with his wife Andromache. We're going to really try and set the pathos this lecture. We're going to try and set up your emotional connection to Hector and to the Trojans so that when things go down, when bad things happen, you have the appropriate feeling connected with those events. So, the battle rages on. Remember, there was a giant battle that began uh, essentially at the beginning of Book 5, really at the end of Book 4 because of Pandaros shooting Menelaus. This battle has continued on throughout several books. In fact, we'll have multiple several book battles. In fact, there will be a battle from Book 11 to Book 16 as well, with a small intermezzo in Book 9 and Book 10. Book 9 will have an embassy to Achilles. Book 10 will have a very famous episode called the Dolanea, where we get to meet a traitorous Trojan who had five sisters named Dolon. And so, while this battle rages on, you can see that it is heating up. A convention I have told you about, and that we have seen, is that sometimes when a, an Achaean or a Trojan catches a rich opponent, they will enslave them. They will take them back to their ships, and then they will sell them off uh, like a kidnapper for... Um, a ransom. And that's a smart thing to do because then you get a lot more out of that person than just their dead body in front of you. That said, here we see an interesting instance of that not happening. Menelaus catches a man named Adrestos and he considers sparing him. But his brother Agamemnon shows up and says that will be just one more Trojan we have to kill at some point. And he stabs him. He slashes him and kills him. And so why is that meaningful? Well, it shows you that the Achaeans, well, it shows you two things. One, it shows you that Agamemnon is actually on the battlefield fighting, which is something he had not done before the Iliad. All nine years, he had not been inspired to fight. The second thing is, you can tell that he's really feeling the pressure of the moment. He does not know how to do, deal with the fact that his team is losing, and if his team is losing, and he loses the Trojan War, where he has ten times more people than the Trojans, and Achilles, he will be humiliated not only during his lifetime, but through all lifetimes. Uh, I mean, just think about how bad a coach or a leader you would have to be to lose to a people who have ten times fewer people than you do, while you have the ultimate warrior on your side. It's like, you kind of have to try to lose. And yet, who is losing right now? Agamemnon! And so, he's really feeling the pressure. That's what this scene indicates. In any case, we then transition to the Trojan side. There's going to be a lot of back and forth in these upcoming books between Trojan and Achaean side. We're going to get into their heads. Hector has a brother named Helenos. I want you to remember Helenos. Because Helenos will pop up again in the Aeneid. Uh, he will pop up again in a couple mythological stories, I will tell you. He is possibly a traitor. Uh, and he will be at one point caught by Odysseus, and as a prophet, he, like a piggy bank full of money, will be shaken for all he's good for. And something you'll soon learn about Odysseus is that when an enemy gets captured, who do you want to interrogate that enemy? Who can derive the information necessary from that person? It's Odysseus. It's Odysseus. We'll see... We'll see that probably happen five or six times, not just during the Iliad, but there are a lot of stories around the Iliad that I'll tell you about. I'll mention Neoptolemus and how he comes to Troy. I'll mention uh, Philoctetes and how he comes to Troy. 
and uh, several other times as well. In any case, Hellenus is a brother of Hector. Remember, he has like 49 brothers. He's a prophet, and he sees a sign that suggests that Hector needs to return to Troy so that he can sacrifice a heifer, that's a female cow, and 12, uh, I think 12 robes to Athena. Two things this tells you. Well, three. A, there are prophets on the side of the Trojans, so they have access to additional information in the same way that the Achaeans do through Calchas. Two, it lets you know that the Trojans are doing so well that they can afford to lose what at this moment during the course of the battle, which is raging on. Yes? They can afford to lose their best fighter and leader. So, that means they're doing well or not well. Very well. Much better than they've ever done. And they want to secure this victory by praying to the war goddess Athena. Very smart plan. Only problem with this plan is something they could not possibly know, which is what? Athena is on the Achaean side, and so she will not listen to them. And that's something you might really want to think about for our next seminar. Is it fair that the strongest goddess is turned against the Trojans? And the answer is probably no. And, but if that's true, we need to think about why that can be. In any case, Hector returns to Troy. And then we have a weird transition. This is that weird story I told you that I was going to tell you about, which is why I lecture on book six. And don't just go straight to book nine. Out in the battlefield, who do we see? Diomedes. And let's remember book five. Has Diomedes been, let's use a vulgarism, killing it? Yes, he's been doing very well. Not only has he killed humans, he has struck gods. Aphrodite, Ares, he even tried to get Apollo, didn't come close. But he's hurt Aeneas, he killed Pandaros, he, uh... All with an injury to his shoulder as well. And he's, he's been incredible. And so when Diomedes runs into a lone Trojan named Glaucus, who is the lieutenant of Sarpedon, who we met in Book 5, remember that Sarpedon is a son of Zeus, the third strongest Trojan, who also killed a son of Heracles named Tlepolemos, and then called out to Hector for help because he had a spear sticking out of his thigh in uh, Book 5. Glaucus now finds himself alone because Sarpedon is out of the picture. He sees Diomedes. Diomedes has recently struck and defeated Ares. How scary is it to see Diomedes on the battlefield at this point? There is no one scarier on the battlefield. Achilleus is not there. And as far as we know, we don't really know just how great a fighter Aias the Greater is yet. We will soon. Starting in Book 7, you will see the greatest of the Achaean fighters besides Achilleus really take control. Uh, in fact, he will at one point alone be on top of Achaean ships, stabbing at men who are trying to burn them. And he'll be pretty successful for a time, too. In any case, Diomedes runs into Glaucus. And this is, this is very famous. And we might do a little bit of reading together now. But I want to set up the reading very quickly, uh, like this. When Glaucus runs into Diomedes, Diomedes says, Who are you? He wants to know who this man is he's about to kill. And this is a man worth killing. He is a lieutenant. He is a nobleman. He is the lieutenant of Sarpedon. He is very much a kill worth having. Glaucus starts to stall for time. He gives a long speech about his ancestry. What you want to think about why he's doing that is, 
He's trying to say anything possible to keep from being killed, which he certainly will be if he engages with Diomedes. And somehow it actually works. It's sort of like when you have a writing assignment and you haven't done the reading and you have no idea what to write and you just start writing things and you think you're going to get an F and then somehow you get the writing assignment back and you got an A. That's like exactly the feeling that uh, Glaucus has here. Let's turn to book six, line 146 very quickly, just because I want to read and have on record this very beautiful quote. I think it's not just beautiful, I think it's true. And uh, you can tell that actually the metaphor of it, it is on page 175 of our edition. The metaphor of it, we even still use in our language. We talk about having a family tree, for instance. And so, hmm, this is Glaucus. Line 144 is where I'll start. Then in turn the shining son of Hippolochus answered, High-hearted son of Tidius, why ask of my generation? That means his family. As is the generation of leaves, so is that of humanity. The wind scatters the leaves on the ground, but the live timber burgeons with leaves again in the season of spring returning. So one generation of men will grow while another dies. Yet if you wish to learn all this and be certain of my genealogy, there are plenty of men who know it. That's very funny, so he sort of contradicts himself there. He says, what's it matter where I come from? Men are like leaves. Do we name the leaves, students? No. The leaves die, and then they're replaced. He says it's the same with people. What's it matter who he is? But, just in case, I'll tell you exactly who it is that I am. And somehow that works, and I'll explain why that works in just a moment. All right. I don't need you to write all of this, but I do need you to know the weird things that were once done by Bellerophonte. So I'm going to call him Bellerophon, even though our translation calls him Bellerophontes, because Bellerophon is what he is usually called in mythology, and uh, Bellerophontes is just kind of annoying to say. In any case, something that happens in the Iliad, it is like a thesaurus. That means a treasury house of ideas and stories. Even though the Iliad for us is ancient literature and ancient, during even the time of the Iliad there was an ancient time. And so part of the mythology of Troy is that we're going to hear a lot about Heracles, who was actually like the generation before the Iliad, and we're going to hear a lot about heroes like Bellerophon. So apparently Glaucus had a grandfather, and his name was Bellerophon. And Bellerophon's very famous for, uh, I'll say, two major reasons. One is he got to ride on Pegasus, uh, Pegasus is a flying horse who many people consider a uh, symbol for the imagination because Pegasus is actually a son of Medusa when Medusa had her head cut off by Perseus using his shield as a mirror, sort of like using art as a mirror of nature. He cut off her head and out from her neck actually jumped two children, one named Chrysaor. Excuse me, yeah, Chrysalor, which we don't really hear a lot about in the mythology, and the other one was Pegasus. And then Pegasus supposedly flew up to Mount Helicon and then uh, pawed at the ground with his hoof, and a stream came out from that, and that's where the muses were born from. And if you really look through that story, and we can do that in seminar, I think that you'll see that that is a clear idea that part of human nature is to have the imagination. In any case, a couple other things that this Bellerophon did. He was, well, let's see, what else? What did, what did I give you over here? Okay, yeah, so let me tell a little more. 
Apparently this Bellerophon, who's not only the grandfather of Glaucus, but also Sarpedon. Glaucus is the first cousin of Sarpedon, I should have said that. Well, Bellerophon was apparently a rather handsome gentleman. This is not something uncommon in Greek mythology or in Greek drama. A stepmother attempting to seduce a stepson is something that we will see uh, not only here, but also in the house of Theseus. Theseus uh, had a son by an Amazon. Those are warrior women. That's where the idea of Wonder Woman comes from, by the way, from Thrace. Um, Theseus with an Amazon. I'm forgetting the Amazon's name at this moment. I'll think of it in a minute in any case. With that Amazon had a son himself named Hippolytus. Or Hippolytus. Excuse me. Hippolytus. Hippolytus was then uh, approached by his stepmother after his mother had died, and she said, Hey, I find you rather handsome. And he said, Ew, you're my stepmother. Technically, he was sent a note by his, um, by his servant, and he rejected it. In any case, she then lied and said that he had attempted to abduct her, take her by force, and then she committed suicide so that it would seem as if it were the case that he had done what he did and she committed suicide in shame, which then convinced his father, Theseus, to attempt to kill him after he tried to exile himself. In any case, that's a very similar story to what we see here where Bellerophon and the wife of the king, Antia, tried to seduce him, and then she lies and says that the reverse was true, that actually he was trying to seduce her. Ooh. So, he was given a letter with secret symbols on it, which basically said, uh, when he was sent from one king to another, make sure to kill this guy when he comes to your court. But the thing is, when somebody comes to your court, they are protected by Zeus. They are protected by something called, and I'm just going to switch it for a moment, the Zinnia. I want you to write this down, and then we're going to go back. If I come to your home or court... Whether you be peasant or king, you are required in the Greek culture to feed me, to bathe me, and only then ask my name. Well, why is that? Well, there are several reasons. One of which is you don't have a cell phone. You don't have cell phone service. You don't have any way of communicating with the people who uh, would provide you safety in general. There are also are not... Um, Regulatory, there are not agencies of police and sheriffs all throughout the world there to protect you. If somebody, if you meet somebody, they take you in because it is dangerous outside, is the idea. In any case, if Bellerophon comes to this new king and this new king kills him, he has upset the Xenia, which means he has upset Zeus, which means that something terrible will happen to him. So how do you kill a man without actually killing a man? Well, this is also a famous idea, and we see this in Heracles' Twelve Labors. You give the man a task that is so near impossible that he will surely fail and die in the doing of it. So I'm going to go back to those tasks. Here are the tasks. First, and you see this picture here on this red figure base of Bellerophon on Pegasus fighting against a creature called a Chimera. Chimera is a hybrid creature. It has a lion head. A goat body and a snake tail. Sometimes it's represented as actually having all three of those heads, too. And the goat head usually looks pretty funny. Because it's just like popped off the back and it's usually turned backwards and with its tongue out. 
So it looks a little bit ridiculous. That was his first task. Then he had to defeat a very dangerous people called the Solomon. You don't need to know about them. But then the third people you do need to know about. He defeated the Amazons. And that's something that is often done by Greek heroes. Um, uh, Heracles defeat... Uh, does Heracles defeat an Amazon? I feel like he does at some point, though I can't think of the particular moment. Achilleus will defeat an Amazonian. Um, Aeneas will defeat an Amazonian. No, no. Am I thinking that? No, excuse me. Aeneas will be on the side of an Amazonian during the case of the Aeneid. Theseus defeats the Amazonians as well. It's sort of a rite of passage of a Greek hero to defeat the Amazons in battle at some point. In any case... Somehow, Bellerophon does all of this. What an incredible guy. And we're all on the battlefield listening to this story, even though we know that we're just like leaves. And so, the whole point of all of this goes on to say that apparently Bellerophon's, Bellerophon, the grandfather of Glaucus, was once the guest of Aeneas, Diomedes' grandfather. Well, if they were friends once and offered each other hospitality, then they are now guest friends. They are protected from each other by the zinnia, it, which is essentially what friendship is for you. It is your protection against the crazy creature who you call your friend. Because when you're a friend, you assume that your friend's not going to what you? Yes? Kill you. Kill you! That's exactly right! That's exactly right! And people say that that is one of the major differences between humans and animals, that we do not kill our friends, that we do not kill our family, though in Greek mythology you will see lots of times when that is not 100% true, but it will never be considered good. And that's, I think, the important thing. And so, Diomedes listens to this whole crazy, fabulous story and says, actually, it turns out that our grandfathers were friends, and therefore we are friends, and therefore I will not kill you. And so, something weird about that, besides the fact that that's just in general weird, is this. Even though Diomedes is honor-bound to kill Trojans, because he is an Achaean, apparently the Zinnia, the guest-host relationship, is even more important than battle sides. Which, sadly, just to mention some American history, we would have done well to remember during our American Civil War, 1861-65, to 65, because as you know, that was a war that pitted brother against brother. According to Diomedes here, that is something that should never happen. In any case, it gets a little bit stranger. And actually, this image up here, though they look a little too medieval, is correct. Since they're friends, well, what is it that you do with your friends that you don't usually do with other people? On their birthday, on Christmas, yes? You exchange gifts with them. We still exchange gifts. Usually when we go to somebody's birthday party, we bring a what? A gift. And then they usually give us a what? Especially when we're younger. Party bag. A gift bag. A party bag. Exactly right. We still exchange gifts. If your parents go over to another parent's house for a nice dinner, what is it that they often take? Wine. Wine with them. Exactly right. Very similar to these people as well. Well, this is what happens here. and Maybe this isn't the best gift, and maybe they're not quite fully friendship, because this is what happens. Diomedes has nice armor. Bronze armor. Worth nine cattle. That's a lot. That's very expensive. Very nice. And um, it's not bronze all the way through. 
it's only bronze on the outside. They're, it's mostly made of leather because these guys have to move fast and move quick. They're not like knights in the Middle Ages who have uh, extremely, extremely heavy uh, iron armor on, and if they fall into a river, will certainly drown. Um, <laughs> but Glaucus has golden armor, which is worth 100 cattle, a full hecatomb. It's like, to a Greek hearing this in the 4th century, they would think that that was like uh, armor worth a mansion. It's tremendously expensive. Well, they decide to switch armor. And actually, Homer describes Glaucus as having been relieved of his wits, having been out of his mind when he made this trade, because it is such a bad trade, because his armor is worth ten times less than Diomedes'. And yet, and yet I, I, I ask this question. Is it really the case that Glaucus gets the short end of the stick in this circumstance? Or not? And why? Yes? He gets to keep his life. Ah. Even though Glaucus has to give up his incredible armor to Diomedes, who's essentially like a bully at a high school, being like, you want to give me your lunch money, don't you, right? And he says, yes, uh, yes, Mr. Diomedes, I mean, friend Diomedes, <laughs> here it is. Even though you lose your lunch money, you get to keep your tea. And so, Diomedes, he gets the armor from Glaucus. Glaucus loses his nice armor, but Glaucus gets to keep his life. And Glaucus will be an important part of the Trojan fight coming up, mostly as an auxiliary, as a helper to, uh, to Sarpedon. Okay, good. Good, 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 good. Hector returns home. We're going to go a little bit quicker through this. So Hector comes into Troy. He goes into Troy to see three people, three people who love him. The first, uh, three women in particular, though, he goes to see one man and happens to see a woman the second time. So first he'll go to see his mother, Hecuba. And she's very famous mythologically. In fact, uh, she <laughs> she's currently the mother of around 50 sons. A few of them have died, about 100 daughters. By the end of her time, she will have almost no sons and daughters. And actually, according to Ovid, she dies by turning into a dog while watching one of her finer, final children being killed and led away as slaves on the shores of Troy, which shows you that, well, even if you have everything, you can lose everything at some point. The second person we'll see will be Paris alongside Helen. Helen also loves Hector, because Hector's actually nice to Helen. Many people do not like Helen. She has brought war to Troy. She's also very beautiful, which makes it easy to be jealous of her. Hector is nice to her, and he's also not trying to take her as a wife or seduce her. He's genuinely a good person towards her. The third person he'll see is his own wife with his son. His wife's name is Andromache, beautiful name. And his son's name is Astyanax, which means defender of the city. And so you can see that Hector has the right values even in how he names his son. Defender of the city. He wants his son to become a great fighter so that he can conquer and pillage or protect his own people. Protect his own people. Defender of the city, not sacker of cities. In any case, 
Hector returns to Priam's palace. I have here listed three names of the same place. Sometimes Troy is called Ilium, sometimes it is called Ilion, sometimes it is called the Sacred Citadel of Ilion. They're all the same place in the same way that Escondido, North County, and North of San Diego are the same place. He goes to seek his mother Hecuba. She offers him wine. She says, oh, take a minute. You've been working so hard. But what's happening outside of those battle walls while Hector comes back and gets to see his family? Terrible fighting. And so, as a commander, he doesn't want to take a minute off while everybody else is working hard and fighting. No. He says, it will unman me to drink wine. I'll start chilling out. I don't need to be chilled out right now. I need to get back to my men. What I need you to do is to make a sacrifice of these 12 robes and a hat, or 12 heifers and 12 robes to Athena so that maybe she will help us. Hecuba then does it very dutifully. And then Athena <laughs> turns her head. She will have none of it. She will help no Trojans ever at any point. And so Hector has done what he could, and yet it has failed. And, well, that is part of life. Because are we Achaeans, are we Trojans, or are we both at one time or another? Something well worth considering. Sometimes you're sacking the city, sometimes you're defending the city, sometimes you're winning, sometimes you're what? Losing. Losing, exactly right. So Hector, I love this picture. This has got Paris down perfect. Perfect. Without armor, sitting there looking like a dandy. That's, of course, Helen right next to him, I imagine. I suppose it could be some servant, but I doubt it. He's playing a liar, too. He's a musician. Musicians and dancers were considered sort of unmanly in the ancient Greek arts because, well, it didn't involve uh, painful physical contact to be a musician or a, a dancer. Though, you know, if you look at ballerina's feet or, like, the fingers of guitarists, there's some pain involved, but not exactly the same as, like, like with a wrestler who will slam you on your shoulder. In any case, Hector seeks out Paris. Something important to notice is this. When he walks into Paris' home, he has full battle attire on, including his horsehair helmet, including his spear. He walks in, it's like tracking mud in to a really nice house. Is he showing respect to his brother? Absolutely not. He goes in essentially to horse collar him and force him out. And so, and this is what I think is so infuriating, Helen is about with her women weaving Paris is busying himself with his armor. Why is he messing around with his armor? Has he even really used it? I mean, I guess his helmet got kind of bashed in by Menelaus recently. But he's messing around with his armor. He's messing around in Troy. He's not fighting. The whole reason that there's a fight happening is because of Paris. What is he doing dawdling in there? Hector again yells at him. You poor abuse. You need to get back out on the battlefield. The whole reason this war is happening is because of you. You disgust me. It's essentially what... He says, he Helen, then, you need to think about what an offer this is. Helen is the most beautiful woman in existence. And she says, come sit next to me, Hector. That's a very provocative thing. Everybody wants to spend some time with Helen. She's gorgeous. She's amazing. She comes from a god. Zeus. And yet, Hector has the integrity necessary just as he turned down the extra time with his mother and the wine from his mother to turn down the time with Helen too. He keeps his mind on the prize. And so he tells Paris that he needs to follow along and meet him at the gates of Troy. Final person. 
Hector goes by his home to find Andromache and his son Astyanax. They're not there. He's told that they've gone to the Trojan Wall to look over the battle. Apparently Andromache wants her son Astyanax to see what a fighter is really made of. Something very sad about Andromache, and I don't think I'm going to be able to go much farther than this today, is this. Andromache's father, King Etion, was the king of the city Theba that was just sacked before the events of the Iliad by Achilleus, the same city from which Briseis and Chryseis were taken. Andromache was a princess of that city. So this is where her head is at right now. We meet her right after her father has been killed, her brothers have been killed, and her mother has died of sadness because of it. Her entire family has just died. And what is her husband currently doing? Fighting against an unstoppable threat called the Achaeans? What's probably going to happen to him? He's probably going to die. Well, if he dies and the Trojans fall, what's probably going to happen to her princely son who is in line for the throne? He's probably going to die too. Andromache has a very nasty situation, a very gnarly situation in her life, to use the Californianism. She's seen, she's already seen herself lose almost everything, and she can see the future in which she will lose even more. And in fact, Hector, and I may read this with you tomorrow, gives her one of the saddest, weirdest speeches I've ever seen where he says, I hope that I die before the day when you are let off as a slave by Achaeans. And, well, that wish will come true, but it's unfortunate that it's come to a place where that is a, something that he actually desires. In any case, we'll pick it up from there tomorrow. Do as much as you can to finish that first page of the study guide.